0: It's Andy Dufresne.
1: I was Andy Dufresne. So Andy Dufresne was my nickname. Shawshank man. <laughs> That's true. right. What oh, Andy. Andy. So I went to prison at 15 years old. Good. Uh, God. Life without parole sentence. Um, was very fortunate that I had my youth and uh, you know the the naive. Aspect of being a kid going to prison worked in my favor because uh, I, I really didn't know the the brunt. Uh, what I was that was in front of me. You know, you're going to die in prison. Um, didn't quite swallow the didn't, pill. Didn't hadn't quite swallowed, and it saved my sanity. To be honest with you, I bet. by the time I recognized, wait a minute, all these other people in this prison who have life sentences are not going home. Uh, they're growing old in prison. You know, that's going to happen to me. But I, w- I was still this, uh, you know, uh, immature kid that liked to get into a little bit yeah, of mischief. Yeah, of course. And uh, so at 17 years old, I remember uh, me and a guy that I worked with uh, caught a skunk. Caught a skunk. With, in the prison? Uh, in the prison. So Where were you housed then? David Wade Correctional Center okay. in Homer, not Homa. Not homer. homer. Hermer. Homer. That's East Texas
2: for all you northern Louisiana folks that eat chili. It's,
1: a, it's an extension of Orklatex. Um, but we catch a skunk. We jump on a skunk with a blanket, and as like a dare that we can catch a skunk. And uh, it was at night. We had jobs where we worked at night. We jumped on the skunk. We catch him, and he doesn't spray. And then we take a piece of nylon, and we put uh, a leash on him. And we start walking him around the prison at night, and uh, it was crazy. It was like walking a little, you know, a little small dog, and, and the skunk was pulling. We were just, like, amazed. And uh, so we start, you know, security sees it by then, and they're like, look at that skunk. They got a skunk on a leash, and everyone's laughing, and we're saying it's not a skunk. It's a polecat, yeah. which is like a joke. A polecat's a skunk. And they're like, oh, it's a polecat. Um, And so we're taking it inside the vestibule, like the security vestibules where where the security officers are. And by this time now, like we've had the skunk on a leash for an hour. It's lights out in the dorm. A lot of guys are in bed. So we're walking the skunk around. Skunk goes into the key room and there are like four or five officers in this key room. And there's like this cadet in there that's like looking at the skunk and he's behind the skunk and he's looking down and he's like, "This skunk looks like he's about to spray. And as soon as he said it, the skunk sprayed and we're in a room smaller than the room we're in now, like seven or eight people. <laughs> it clears out the dorms stink. Guys are waking up raising hell. What the hell's going on? Like, <laughs> get this skunk out of here. We <laughs> got this now, now like we're trying to get this skunk out of this little room back on the yard. So the next day, um, you know, we're all thinking we're going to get in trouble uh, because, like, so many people now know that there's this... We caught this skunk. We brought bomb, skunk. it It's okay. Pet skunk. The security that was working had their uniforms sprayed. They had to go break into the warehouse to get new uniforms. So it's like it's going to be a little scandal. So just sort of waiting for someone to come and ask about it. And uh, the next day there's a guy that's getting locked up for defiance. You know, he cursed out a free man. Uh, and the story is that... He's getting locked up, and he tells the colonel, who's on duty, like, y'all worried about me? Y'all need to be worried about people putting skunks on leashes and spraying the dormitory. And the colonel looked at him and said, what did you say? Yeah, they had guys <laughs> last night, had a skunk, sprayed the dorm. You need to be worried about that. And the story is the colonel said, man, get this lying son of a gun out of here. Ah! That guy making up stories. So we never got in trouble. Uh, but a lot of people, you had to be there. To like really see it only in prison you know as a kid do you catch a skunk walking around a leash uh, and then it sprays <laughs> a dormitory
0: right, that's, so, that's such a crazy story and now it's just like a lie compared to oh boy you know yeah, like, okay. nah he's lying, he's lying. He's lying. anytime you ever hey,
2: kudos the to the guards for not Doming y'all out. Diamond.
1: No, because they'd have been in trouble too. because yeah, they, would they have let to, y'all in. They let, let the us. Skunk. They yeah. let us walk around with the skunk, yeah. and we were outside the dormitories at night. So,
2: and now they have like dog and cat programs in Angola and the state prisons and stuff. So you might be walking into a dorm mm-hmm. and they had cages under the bed and they just got random dogs. But like
0: uh, CNI dogs, but for their no, criminals.
2: they're like, was it compassionate care? They train them and. Uh, I'll be honest with you. When I when the program started, when I was at Rayburn, and I, I was kind of involved with it because there was a deaf guy, so I'd interpret all his classes with Bill Bars, and uh, I was kind of opposed to having the dogs in the dorm because I didn't know how well they would be they, treated. Well, not, not not I knew that guys would be sweet to them, but I didn't know like the like uh, how if they sweet sh- pooing. Yeah. And and you know like if the guys were capable of really taking care and how well the training was right, mm-hmm. but man, I ain't gonna lie. I started petting the dogs and getting attached to them, and <laughs> I liked it. I can tell
1: you that programs expanded at Angola. Uh, you have several guys who have dogs, and you know it's a it's a good program. The guys who have the dogs are less likely to get into disciplinary yeah. issues because they have they something start, to hold on. They have to, something yeah. to hold on to. They care for that dog. Makes sense. Uh, but. You know, one thing that's happening at Angola that a lot of people don't know about um, is that death row is really different. And what I mean by that is most people think of death row, and and they would be correct to think, and these are guys who are locked in their cells 24 hours a day. They come out to take a shower. They go into a fenced-in, you know, exercise yard. Uh, And, you know, we have more than 70 people on death row in Louisiana, and no one's getting executed uh, and you know we could have a debate in the public about whether that's right or wrong, but you have people who've been locked in cells for 20, 30 years. Woodfoxes died. Woodfox died. Well, anyway, the uh, warden has has opened death row, so death row. These guys aren't going anywhere. They're not getting executed. Let's treat them like human beings. So some of the things that happen, they open their cells uh, at nine a.m. and they're open until six p.m. So they can come on the tier. They can play chess together. They eat together. Uh, They have anger management classes uh, for them. But one of the things that's happening with the dogs is the guys who are taking care of the dogs bring the dogs to death row so the death row guys can interact with the dogs, you know, and, uh, you know, it gives them something to look forward to, gives them some human interaction. And what would surprise a lot of people is not everyone who's on death row stays on death row. Exactly. Some of those people are going to be exonerated. Some of those people, uh, because of prosecutorial misconduct, are going to plead down to lesser charges. They may be in prison for a little while longer. But a lot of these people are going to end up coming home. So why just keep them in a cell and don't expect, you know, to offer them anything? Some of those people may be coming home. So there's a lot of consideration given even the guys who are on death row. And as the warden told me, that he looks at how he treats people on death row as the baseline of how he should treat everyone else in the prison. And uh, they even have a basketball team at death row now that plays with camp. camp F comes Shut and out. plays for against real? death row. So these like the, the morale at death row is so much better. And a lot of people will look at it and go, why are we doing anything for people on death row? Well, if anything else, think about the staff. Because prison's a violent place and the people who work there have to work in a violent environment. And, you know, you know those situations where you have people locked down all day You know, there's a lot of violence that happens even with people in the cell. Shit darts. That's right. And violence has dropped, write-ups have dropped, since the warden has instituted this new program.
2: I've always said this. What happens when you beat and torture a dog? He's going to be a mean dog. Mean dog. So... My theory always has been when people bark at the idea of, like, education and reform prison, We all need to give them pressure. They committed crime. Bury them underneath the jail. Do away with them. Hell, yeah. They're coming home. They're going to be your neighbors. Mm. Would you rather a mean dog? Would you rather a a friendly human being who's going to contribute and and be a tax-paying citizen who's nice and compassionate and cares about life again? It's pretty no brainer for me.
0: Yeah, you can select on the poll which one would you rather live next to, the mean dog or the compassion. snuggle bunny? Yeah, the snuggle bunny. <laughs> no, that does make a lot of sense though. You know, but I can it's, see where both people are coming from, but like whenever you're talking about the exit strategy of it all, like you got to have that compassion for the people and I like how um the baseline being the people that are on death row too. Shout out to is it
2: organizations that made that happen?
1: their vera institute i'll give some props to because you know what they've been pushing for is less solitary across the board in louisiana prisons is that like
2: kiana yep yeah kiana shout out to kiana callaway he was on here a couple weeks ago um and they uh they actually have this um, i'm on it the solitary confinement um task force uh they started up.
1: I did ten days isolation. So one time, so you know, there's being on lockdown. There are a few working cell block. Isolation is tough time. You know, that's on the rock. They take your mattress. Oh, yeah, uh, you get
2: to talking to yourself and painting pictures with I, the peeling paint on the wall.
1: I did ten days isolation, and this was later in my incarceration. This wasn't when I was a kid. I, I can't imagine how I would have handled it when I was a kid. But you know, I'm a guy that you know ha- kind of has it together. Um, and I can tell you, 10 days in a cell with nothing in that cell, uh, you know, drove me crazy. And, uh, you know, we you can't treat people like that
2: no, and, and, and expect them to, to be the best versions of themselves. Not at all. What's going on, everybody? This is Scott with Penitentiaries to Penthouses podcast. On the left, I have your best friend in real estate. It's your boy. Beatty. About it, Beatty. What was your screen, AIM screen name? Uh, about It Beatty. about It Beatty. I knew I got that from somewhere.
0: Also, Big Mac Beatty, if you Big remember. Mac.
2: You had to have two or three accounts yeah, so yeah, you yeah. could sneak on and do things. You know what I'm talking about? And then to my right is the, uh, the legend, the man, the myth, and the legend, Mr. Andrew Hunley. Welcome, Mr. Hunley. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, no problem. Glad to have you. I've been wanting to have you. We almost made it happen a couple weeks ago, but uh, times and schedules got messed up. Um, but I'm glad to have you today. Tell us where you're from, Andrew. Uh, a little bit about yourself, and then um, then we'll kind of work our way into you know what led you to prison. Uh, if you want to talk about that, and then we'll go in you know prison experience, and then mainly focus on all the amazing things you're doing now. But talk about where you're born, family, whatever you want to talk about, leading up to prison.
1: Sure, um, born and raised in Eunice, Louisiana, Saint Landry Parish. Shout out St. Landry. Uh, Shout out Eunice. Prairie, Cajun, capital. I also cl- my, my mom's from Mamu, which is oh. 10 minutes down the road, so I claim Mamu. Because Why I do I always time.
2: think of a, a like a killer whale when I hear the word Mamu? Shamu. When, Shamu.
1: <laughs> when I think of Mardi Gras, I think of Mamu. Mamu yeah, yeah. That's we chase, a, yeah. chase chickens. Chase they do, chickens. do it. Yeah, they, they do, do it do. there. Fred's Lounge. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a great place, but grew up there. Uh, Good Cajuns. Middle child of, uh, of you know, two loving parents. My parents still live there. Uh, fortunate that my parents are still alive and really active in my life. Got have a sister that's uh, eight years older than me, a sister that's six years younger than me. We're spread out. Um, Mom and Dad said, we don't want them back-to-back.
2: Back. Let's spread these <laughs> let's, guys apart.
1: The, uh, grew up um, you know decent athlete, decent student. What you played? Uh, basketball was my sport. Uh, you look and, like
2: an old LeBron or you, you know, Larry Bird. When actually. I was when I
1: was thirteen years old, I was six three. I had a growth spurt, and I thought like I'm gonna. I loved Shaq. I'm gonna. I'm gonna be a center. You know, I, I, I had this post game. Never really worked on my dribbling skills, and just thought you know I'm gonna be this really tall guy. And I'm up. And then I was fifteen. I was still six <laughs> three. Ah, <laughs> so you was
2: expected at least to be six seven by then, right? Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> but
1: but played basketball, played baseball, played football. Um, good student, really interested in politics as a kid, uh, weirdly like got into political campaigns. There was something about that that really drew me in that. and still to this day, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll never hold elected office. You know, usually politicians, you know, get arrested after they go into office. So, uh, I, I sort of jumped the gun and got arrested before I could get elected. Never say never, never say never. Uh, we're going to work on that. <laughs> but, um, you know, 15 years old. Uh, in a, you know, my life started changing that summer. It was the summer between my sophomore and junior year in high school.
2: Yeah,
1: uh, you know, uh, full of testosterone and yeah. you know, experimenting with things I hadn't experimented with before. Namely. Uh,
2: uh, acid? Yeah, acid. Hell yeah. Um, no, I'm PC- joking. PCP. Don't do drugs. Don't do drugs. Mm-hmm. Don't do drugs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, PCP. I did PCP one time in my life. Uh didn't smoked it on a cigarette. Smoked it in a joint The wit? Yeah, and it had a um you know, it had a a really bad effect on me um and sent me into a rage. Uh took someone's life, um, was arrested the next day, charged with while on PCP. While on PCP. Mm. Charged with uh second degree murder, which in Louisiana carries a mandatory life, without parole sentence, whether you're fifteen years old or fifty years old. Uh, and they prosecuted me to the fullest extent of the law. Uh, you know, obviously, uh, I, I am guilty of the crime I committed. I deserve to be held accountable. Um, you know, at the time, it seemed pretty harsh that as a 15 year old, they would tell me I'm, I'm going to die in prison. Yeah. Uh, thankfully, there was a change in laws and change in the way the, the country looked at how we sentence teenagers. Uh, man above. You know, persuaded the Supreme Court to
2: uh, if He can part the Red Sea for Moses, he can uh, he can open up the jail cells for my boy.
1: So but at fifteen years old what was in front of me was I would spend the rest of my life in prison. Die in prison. I would die in prison.
0: Hold on, so whenever you were on P C P do you remember but like what it felt like or did you like wake up like uh, no, a no of it, drinking? You
1: know, I, I I can't say that I had like Vivid. I, I I remember, and I, what I remember most is just the the rage that it put me in. I, I really wasn't an angry kid. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, didn't get in a lot of fights. Didn't really just just wasn't this person who uh, who had this rage. But
2: wasn't an angry kid. It wasn't
1: an angry kid, but I was an angry kid that night.
2: Drug induced. Yeah. All right. Mm-hmm. Hey, I, I say it all the time, man. Drugs will change people to the. Uh, to the fullest extent you know you one day uh one day you have a, a sweet loving human and the next day you know you have a person that's you don't even know him anymore so i get drugs man. drugs will change people chemicals mm-hmm. so you get life without parole
1: life without parole
2: 15 uh, 15
1: years old uh, I'm, I'm sent to a prison in north louisiana david wade correctional center um and, Shout uh,
2: out the, to East Texas.
1: The, the first uh, unit they put me in as a kid, they thought they were doing me a favor. And the state has a protective custody unit for cops. And it's at David Wade Correctional Center. It is a general population cell block. So it's a cell block, as you think about, but they leave the cell doors open. But they have about 50 people housed there. And they're cops, correctional officers, DAs, wardens. High profile confidential informants from Louisiana, from Louisiana, who you know, uh, priests who Mm. uh, get sent to prison. So, they that's where they put them, and they put me. And not all kids go there, but you know, sometimes they end up putting kids there. And it was the worst time because you had all these personalities who were used to being alphas in charge, and here I am as a kid, so it's like 50 people. Wanting to tell a kid how to live his life, you know the priests wanted to tell me. Yeah, how to how I, did. how I needed to pray. I had to keep my distance from the well, old I'd, priest. I'd, like everyone told me when I first went in, stay away from that. You have guy. to stay away from him. And you know it was like the politics of all these cops and stuff wanting me to be close to him. And I remember like the first time the guy came and like. Put his hand on my shoulder. How you doing? Like lashing out at him. Like, don't touch me. I'm not. I'm not a uh, queer. You know. Don't. And the guy's like, Oh, I was just coming to see how you were doing. But it was. It was a really bad time. I was there for two years, and I remember begging the warden, please get me out of here. And you know, I was still a teenager, and he's like, Seventeen. Well, are are you sure you really want to go into general population? I was like, Yes, please. And uh, you know what? What I ended up learning. Pris, even you know, prison's always evolving. Um, You know, prison's still 20 years behind a society, but, like, prison was different by the time I got out than two decades whenever I first went in. Uh, But, you know, I was scared, uh, but what I learned really quick was, like, people who are harmed, people who get into stuff, or people who are living a certain lifestyle in prison, if you have respect for other people, you surround yourself with the right people, you're not going to get hurt. That's right. So... Uh, you know, was there for uh, the first four years of my incarceration then transferred to Dixon Correctional Institute. DCI. DCI in Jackson, which is a totally different prison. Uh, it's I had a lot of leadership opportunities there. Uh, like what would they let you
2: do? To- Did you know Miss
1: uh, Mr. Mike uh, Ellerby? Yeah, Mike Ellerby was actually a mentor of mine. Okay, Mike, Mike Ellerby who, who passed away. Uh, of cancer several years ago but was active in pre-release and his wife Elaine also active in in prison programming Um, knew them really well but DCI Toastmasters got really active in Toastmasters prisoner organization Toastmaster Toastmaster Toastmaster. so I climbed the ladder and then I had an opportunity to be a district officer DCI allowed me to participate with outside Toastmasters was a manager of the boxing team at oh. DCI. All right, uh, you know, got to travel. Get in there and... I sparred a little bit, but oh, I was—I yeah. was—they I was the, called me the Don King of prison boxing uh, <laughs> I, was, I was the inside promoter. We would travel to Angola, hunt, have boxing matches. It was really fun, um, but you know, active in in organizing that. Um, went to state police barracks as a trustee for several years. Um, and uh, and and then at the end of my incarceration went to Angola, uh, but while I was at state police barracks, it was really uh, you know your trustees there. You work for state police, uh, got to interact with the public. What was your job? Uh, the job I had most of the time I was there was I worked in the the commander's the commander of the barracks. I was their clerk, uh, did the administrative work. So, you know, paperwork, files, uh, the bank. We ran the banking. Uh, for the people oh, Andy Dufresne, there. I was Andy Dufresne. So Andy Dufresne was my nickname. Shawshank. He and <laughs> what that's did, right. Oh, what Andy. Andy and I both have in common is we worked for the warden. Right. We did 19 years, both of us before we got out.
2: Really? Yep. There you go. And so you were like the, the modern day. Andy. I was the modern day Andy. Man, yeah. we're going to have to you got to coin that some type of way. Or
1: make a movie. We'll make T-shirts. The, link,
0: the new, in the, link in the description. Yeah, n- the new
2: Shawshank.
1: So uh, you know, while I was at the barracks, out in the public, would shop for the barracks. That was part of my job. I'd go to Walmart and Sam's, and uh, you know, Trooper would take me, and then you know, buy whatever we needed for the. I commissary. used to hate
2: trips outside the prison. You know why? Was it? Because you get like a little dose of reality. Yeah,
1: I started doing it so much that yeah, it was just I didn't get just, I
2: didn't I wouldn't I didn't get all those opportunities, uh, but the times that I would travel to and from Angola or hunts or LCIW, uh, or whatever we were doing and the programs I was in, every time I just got a little taste of the free world, I would get so depressed coming back. I was
0: like, oh, it's like coming home from a cruise, but like not. Yeah, yeah. yeah I know.
1: So Again. ended ended my time at Angola. Um, worked on the range crew. So the range crew is the cattle crew at Angola. So they're, you know, Angola, uh, a lot of people don't know this, but it's the size of Manhattan, 18,000 acres. Acres. It's a it's a huge farm surrounded by the Mississippi on three sides. People think of a prison and, and it's they think of four walls and you know, that's not Angola. Angola's boundaries are the Tunica Hills and the Mississippi River. Right. And you know, there are some camps scattered about the place. A lot of farm, a lot of cows, over 2,000 head of cattle there. So there's a crew that takes care of that cattle. And it's really a sweet job if you value your freedom. And, you know, freedom is whatever someone makes of it. But freedom for me was moving around. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to be in one spot. So working on the crew, I had access because the, the cattle aren't kept in one part of the prison. Right. They're spread out all over the prison. Uh, they graze all over. And uh, so, you know, I grew up, I wasn't a cowboy. Uh, but I learned to be a cowboy at Angola and was active in the rodeo. So you was
2: with old uh, Alex Hennis? It was with Alex Hennis,
1: uh-huh. uh, uh Doctor Alex Hennis. Doctor, yeah, he's a traveling man now. He he's got,
2: he's going, he's been to Africa. He's about to go to Guadalajara. He travels all over. He works for that university. In Missouri. Yeah. yeah, I, I keep, I, I text with him. He's, he's
1: made the most. You know what I respect about Alex is he's using what he learned in prison. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, and I feel like, you know, I was given a lot of opportunities and those opportunities helped prepare me for what I'm doing today. And I think a lot of people think, you know, man, in prison, you just learn bad things. Criminals learning from other criminals. And that is true. But what's even more true is that that there are certain opportunities people are given to better themselves. And for me, I was given a lot of leadership opportunities. I was given an opportunity to educate myself. I took advantage of those opportunities. You know, one thing I have to say is I received more opportunities than most people. And what I tell wardens, what I tell the secretary of corrections, uh, you know, I'm not an exception to the rule. Rather, I'm an example of what happens when people give opportunities. You know, I am who I am today because so much was given to me.
2: Absolutely.
1: And, uh, you know, I, I took advantage of it. Uh, and, and I have no regrets that I took advantage of every one of those opportunities. But oftentimes, you know, people say, ah, yeah, but you're a little different. And it, I'm different in that no one ever told me no. Whatever I asked for, they said yes. Yeah. And I'm not saying that I was, I had a, Luxurious life. It's just if I wanted, if I wanted a job, if I wanted an education, if I wanted to grow, people said yes. Uh, And I'm, I'm that you know I know a lot of it had to do with the color of my skin. I know a lot of it had to do because I was Andy Dufresne. Oh, you're different. You you don't look like someone who belongs here. But you know I was a convicted murderer with a life sentence that was given those opportunities. So people can change uh, and people can be successful. Uh, and we should not wait for people to come home to give them opportunities to grow. You know, while people are incarcerated, let's give them opportunities to become the best version of themselves that they can be so when they come home, they're ready to hit the ground running.
2: So when that, were, you were at Dixon, or no, you went to the, the state police, police barracks, so then you went to Angola. Uh, did you know you were going to Angola? So got into a disciplinary issue at state
1: police barracks. What so happened? All good things can come Female? to Female? Un- unauthorized. Female visitor. Oh,
0: booty duty. Every
1: time, baby. Um,
2: conjugal uh, visits, un, un, uh, unapproved conjugal visits.
1: Unapproved. So, uh, you know, my
2: time had come to an
1: end yeah, at the barracks. Uh, I was transferred to Angola. And, you know, I, I was very aware of, you know, what Angola was. So was sort of mixed feelings going you there. You've been in prison
2: long enough to hear all the gladiator stories, correct?
1: Yeah. So I didn't want to go back anywhere I had already been okay. because you go back – Tell a place you've been, and then there, you know, you're sort of a laughing stock. Oh, you crashed out. You're back. here. Even though I had never got
2: caught messing with them free people,
1: never. I had never went home, but I still know like the mentality yeah. would have been as if someone who went home and lost their freedom. You were given
2: a, a, you were given an opportunity that most people in prison don't get. I would say ten percent of the the Louisiana prison population gets opportunities to go to another place to have like. A laid out drop.
1: Yeah, and I would probably say even less, fewer than 10%. But I had the opportunity to go to Angola knowing that I would be a trustee, knowing that I would go to work on the range crew. So it it wasn't all doom and gloom for me. Um, So I knew at least I would be going into a good situation and uh, I would be a trustee. Now, you know, going to, if I was just some, you know, at that time I was in my early 30s, Um, you know, going to Angola, there was this sense, though, you know, at at the time when I went there, there were over 6,000 lifers, 6,000 people there, most of them lifers, uh, most of them without outdates. Um, You know, there was this sense that everywhere I was before, I was somebody. And now I'm just one of 6,000 people. And like, man, I'm gonna have to start over. Um, But once I got there, I I was fortunate that Pretty quickly, I was given a chance to start climbing the ladder again. Um, a lot of people didn't know who I was, so I had a clean slate. Uh, and I was able to start building my reputation. And by that time, I wasn't a 15-year-old doing dumb things like catching skunks. Yeah,
2: walking skunks around the door. Um,
1: and I wasn't doing the dumb things I was doing with, whenever I was a kid. I was I had enough experience to know this is how to navigate a prison. Um with, like, the added sense that I'm at Angola. There are more people, you know, doing life sentences. There are more people who, like, don't have a low tolerance for BS because this is my house. This is where I live. I'm not going home. I'm not going to take any disrespect. So I always was really mindful, give everyone their their respect. Um, but I'm going to tell you, what, being at Angola, you know, being at a place b- – before I was at places where people were going home, and I was one of the few guys – who wasn't going to go home. And now I'm at a place where not many people are going home and people are growing old here. Um, so, I, you know, a big part of why I do, why I do to, what I do today is because I was at Angola and because I saw, you know, how much despair there was in, in the terms of people who should no longer be in prison that were incarcerated for like what reason? Why are these 50, 60, 70-year-old men who've been here for decades still here? Um, and and it really, you know, changed. It, it really helped me grow, helped me mature in just the few years that I was
2: there. I bet. I bet. Yeah, uh, I tell people all the time, because uh, most people still have the, the uh, for our audience, the bloody Angola, Shout hashtag out. podcast podcast. Uh, Mind, mind thinking. Oh, I said mind thinking. What a terrible
0: man. Words. Cut. Podcast is over.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Idea, perception, mind thinking. Uh, that was uh, that was my ASL translation. Um, so bloody Angola, and and at one point Angola was the bloodiest eighteen thousand acres. And I don't know about the world, but definitely the country. Um, so. I had always thought that, too, until I was making trips over there. And my first time to get to Angola was when I was in the sign language program. And we made a little trip over there. We were testing. I stayed there for, I don't know, a week or two. I forget how long we were there. I did that a couple times. And, uh, dude, I mean, to say that I was in prison... I had a damn good time, dude. I was ordering po' boy trays night. There we night. go.
0: Everybody uh, go to prison, get you up a good po' boy. Yeah,
2: yeah. Who that, no, who that's at Hunts. Uh, what's the, well, they have all the clubs at Angola. And so, like, dudes would come around, hey, man, what you want for dinner tonight? Excuse me? For, what do you mean? Y'all don't have a chow hall? Yeah, they got one, but the clubs are selling, you know, uh, barbecue chicken, green. Nah, nah, nah. I'm like, for real? Then another club come up, hey, man, we're doing this. And I'm like, What in the hell is going on? Where am I? So
0: room service.
2: I'm like, how the hell did I get to
1: Rayburn? I can tell you when I first went to prison, I heard, you know, there are a lot of psychological games. I heard a man tell another man, you don't have to go to bed hungry. And it just like, you know, blew me away to hear another man (laughs) tell another man,
2: I got something
1: to feed you. But, you know, people, you know a hungry man is more likely to do the wrong thing a man who's full
2: yeah.
1: is going to go lay down in his bed lay down He's down like gonna a watch fat TV. dog so there are people who you know if everyone is eating those beans and rice and greens trays with
2: saltpeter in
1: it yeah there you know there are going to be hungry people in that prison and those are going to be people who are fighting there's, there's going to be unrest in the prison it's going to be dangerous for staff So the rodeo at Angola is a boom to the economy. Absolutely. Because those guys get to work year-round to make arts and crafts that they sell, and now they have money in their pockets. And the clubs at Angola sell these food trays that, hey, if you don't want to go to the chow hall, buy a po' boy, buy a hamburger. You get full, spend the money that you made on food and that's a big part of the, the prison economy is being able to buy food. And when guys buy that food, they're full, they're hungry, they're, they're no satisfied. longer hungry. They're satisfied, and they don't get into trouble. So it's a, anytime I hear someone asking, like, how are y'all eating po'boys in prison, I promise you the warden and the staff are thankful that those po'boy trays
2: are there. Absolutely. And and here's the, the other thing. I remember at Rayburn, because they only did, like uh, – they would let you get, like, McDonald's or Popeye's or something like once a year. And, it, I like, maybe once or twice a year you could order something from the outside and they bring it in. But other than that, I was working out at least once a day, probably twice a day. So I was f- super hungry. And, uh, you know, I hustled in there and I had money and stuff like that. But when I was in the chow hall, Dude, I would sit by as close as I could to the to the dump area. <laughs> I'm at the end of the table. Say, buddy, you gonna eat the vegetables? Let me get that. Put it on my plate. Hey, man, you ain't gonna eat that little patty? Now it ain't often that you can catch a patty. Yeah. Or a Piece of chicken. Piece of but chicken. But in the event that I did, I was there scooping it up. I might get six or seven extra vegetable trays and whatever else they got on it. Let me get that. Let me get that. Oh, you're not eating your boiled egg this one? Let me get that. And you gotta. That's how you gotta live. But whenever you're in Angola. Or even at Hunt. Hunt does the Hudak Cafe, which is good, by the way. Um, super satisfying. Scott's
0: always been eating vegetables, though. One time at Dane's house, we walked in, and he had, like, a empty can of green beans, and he was just kind of going in there. So <laughs> All that, my friends would tell you So that, that translates. I've even, like, I, it makes sense that he you would be like, Even, even though,
2: even when I was wilding on the streets, right, doing my thing, Selling drugs, doing drugs, partying, whatever. I was always in the gym. <laughs> I was always eating healthy. I might do a boatload of drugs and I was going to be the cleanest eating something in the room. I was eating baked chicken, vegetables, fruit,
0: salad. <laughs> Bag full of deli meat one time, too. <laughs> Scott can't ever come back. Oh, yeah, I remember yeah. that. Who ate the deli meat? <laughs> <laughs> I'm just happy to be here. <laughs> I, let me ask you about, I know that it's hard to actually put yourself in a situation where you weren't in prison for, mm-hmm. since you were 15, but do you think you would have been able to take advantage of opportunities if that were an option on the outside? Meaning like, or if you didn't, do you think that because there were no other options that taking advantage of opportunities inside of prison, like you were able to do that? Like,
1: do you- Well, let me give you a clear, the clearest example I could give you. Uh, I was given opportunities to take college courses while I was incarcerated. And I know there are some people going to be, what a waste of taxpayer dollars. Yeah,
2: I get that all the time.
1: Education for prisoners. But prisoners that leave prison with college degrees have like a zero, 1% recidivism rate. It's extremely low. I mean, it's common sense. People with... A GED, you know, uh, per the studies I've seen, doesn't move the needle on recidivism, but trade degrees.
0: Got to get a trade degree. And
1: college degrees. The People who come home with trades and college degrees, they get jobs. People who are in the work I do, people, it's, it's a really simple formula. You have a job. You have a place to live. You don't commit crimes. Uh, the guys who are committing crimes don't have both of those or, or one of those. But that being said, I was able to take a lot of college courses, never was able to work towards a degree, um, but um, you know, through River parishes community college, LSU, there was there, I was always able to take these courses. So when I came home, I had a year's, I was able to apply a year's worth, of credits to LSU towards a degree. So it was a motivator to me that I didn't tell myself that Man, this is going to take me four years. It was like, this is going to take me three years. Yeah. And bo- shame on me if I don't take advantage. I already have credits. And then I finished in two and a half years. Yeah. So what I'll say is that there opportunities like that, you know, a lot lend to, to other opportunities. So maybe I would have still gone to college, but... You know, it made it so much easier and, and so much, uh, you know, it, uh, more enticing for me to finish my college degree and then got my master's degree. Um, Damn. So, you know, then got married and... Uh, got a caboose. Uh, got a caboose. So it's, um, you know, the uh, there were opportunities for me out here, but sort of the opportunities that I took advantage Segwayed. of... Segwayed. Like put like allowed me to to have other opportunities whenever I came home. I will say, you know, there's, you know, there there are avenues for people who are coming home. If you don't have a trade degree, you know, you you can get a trade degree when you come home. But there is, you come home from prison and like the rat race starts. Uh, unless mom and dad are letting you live in their house, you know, most people coming out of prison don't have money. Most people who go to prison live in poverty. Their family's still in poverty probably still in poverty when they come out their parents aren't able to support them their sisters their brothers can't support them so people have to work right away so why not give someone an opportunity to earn a trade earn a degree before they get out so they could immediately enter the job market in the best possible position they're not going to go back to prison it's gonna it costs us um, you know what it costs to educate someone in prison, Um, is six months. I would say what it costs us to incarcerate someone for about six months versus if a person goes back to prison and gets a 10-year sentence. Now we're paying for 10 years of incarceration. So I think that's what the the public needs to see, that the investment made in someone while they're incarcerated means less that we spend on them in future years.
2: Yeah, and and, I will attest to that 100%. um, When I was uh, in prison, I was able to do, like, you with the River Parish. I took college classes at Rayburn. And I got a two-year welding degree. But when I came home, uh, and then I did the sign language program, but when I came home, uh, I had way over a year's worth of credits, right? And uh, I was able to immediately enroll in Baton Rouge Community College. I went there for a semester uh, to get a couple classes knocked out to enroll in a four-year program uh, in Missouri, in Fulton, William Woods, to work on my ASL degree and then uh, minored in business administration. But had I not gotten that while I was in prison, strong possibility that I wouldn't have done it coming on. I wasn't going to do it before. I had no hope. I didn't believe in myself. The only thing I knew I was good at was selling dope. I wanted to be Pablo Escobar.
0: Shout out, Pablo.
2: And... Never in a million. I wasn't ready to go to college when I graduated high school. I was too into myself, and I was too immature. So having that opportunity in prison, actually the exposure of it, it wasn't even that it was there. It was I'm watching dudes like Pat me and Pat got real close while I was there, and uh, and Vlad, a couple other guys. But watching them get into the college program, and like they're having like intellectual conversations. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds cool, man. I like them words. Honest to God, we all walked around with the sources. Now, that's famous for prison stuff, so you start making up. You you have these big flowery sentences with words that probably don't always fit good, but they're there. Mm -hmm. We're putting them. We're using them. But that expands your vocabulary, and you start reading books, getting into the classes, educating yourself, you know, and then – at a certain point, I was several years away from my addiction, so my my cognitive functioning was coming back. I was having intellectual thoughts, doing the college program was helping, doing the sign language was helping, doing the wellness was helping. And then one day, it's like an epiphany, I like I felt smart. And so guys started asking me to help them on JPEG type because they said I had good English. And that boosted my confidence. You know, all it, it's, it's it's weird stuff, but it's like it's kind of what helped me. I'd be able to believe in myself.
1: And not only that, but young guys who looked up to Scott because they saw Scott as a strong guy in prison, and they looked at Scott like, hey, this is what I want to be, you know. and they see a transition in Scott. They continue to want to be like Scott, and so that affects other people, guys that wanted to be like Vlad, guys that wanted to be like right. Pat. So it's like these opportunities don't just affect one person, but, phew, but it spreads. It permeates. It mm-hmm. really
2: does. No man, I, and I'm, I'm I get that a lot too. People are like, uh, "Well, I, if somebody commits a crime, they need to do the time." I wish we could do away with all those people, mm-hmm. mm. but but in the same sense, I will say this: I had a lot of people with that mindset, guys I hunt with, guys in my community, and different facets of my life that had that mentality. And hanging out with me on a regular basis or getting... Even police officers. Like I coach with police officers. And uh, I'm, I've, I've hunted with guys that are police officers, different things. And, and I can tell. They don't actually tell me. I can see a shift in, in how they speak about it and how they think about it and things that they say. And, you know, But some people have said, man, you really have changed my mind on, on people that have come home from prison. I would have never pegged you as that person i would have you know this is what i thought before here's what i think now and you know so it's like i hate that thinking i hate when people say stuff like that it's like
0: yeah typ- but typically objections is because of a lack of uh education on it so i mean the more that they're going to be around you the more they're like this guy yeah it's not so bad yeah it's
2: like it, i think they think i'll give you an example analogy I used to apply to work at these uh, video remote interpreting call centers, right I would I had the certification necessary, the educational component with the college, and then skills pass all my skill assessments, sign interpret voice, sign production, and I would get shot down on my my background. Now, there have been people that worked in VRS calling. And for those who don't know, this is video remote interpreting, of video relay um, services where it used. To, it's a replacement of the TTY pretty much. They used to have the phone, and you type back and forth on the phone, da 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 did with that. Now and they still have it, but it's for people that don't necessarily use sign language. But um, VRS is a service paid for by the federal government, the FCC. They have call centers, and a lot of people do it remotely from home now. But anyways, a deaf person can make a phone call on their phone from an app or at home. It's for telecommunication purposes. If I want to call and order a pizza, I need to talk to my attorney, or I need to call the doctor and set up an appointment, da 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 an interpreter pops up on the screen. And I'm giving you this visualization to tell you how ridiculous the turndown was. So in the past, interpreters have committed fraud possibly by... You know, there's sensitive information that go. You might give your social security number, debit card to pay for this, the, that. So, it's actually the people that are working in the call centers now that you have to worry about. Not a guy coming from prison who wants an opportunity, right? And now I don't need that opportunity. Like I'm, I'm fine. I don't need that career. I don't need that anymore. At the time, I could have really used the opportunity to work in those places. So uh, I, I, I would call up there. Like, hey, I'm five years out of prison. Can I apply now? And every single time, yeah, come on, apply. Three times I did this. They almost tried to get me for a fourth one recently. I just said, no, 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 I ain't messing with this. But would pass everything screening, educational component, certification, da 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 And I would get turned out from my background. A, they would never tell me what on my background. We can't disclose that information. And then B, I'm thinking in my head, and I've asked the directors of these. What do they think I'm gonna do? Jump through the screen, beat a deaf person up, and crawl back in my my cubicle? Like I'm obviously trying to better myself. I'm not gonna steal information. I'm not gonna commit fraud. So when'd you get out? June ninth, two thousand sixteen. June ninth, two thousand sixteen. Damn, you've
1: been home that long. Yeah. And then, uh, yeah. So the, the you know story on how I got home because I had a life sentence. Uh, you know, over the past several years, U.S. Supreme Court's made a series of decisions related to juveniles. You know, it wasn't long ago you could still sentence a juvenile to the death penalty. So the first decision was in a, a case called Roper. Supreme Court said you can't give juveniles the death penalty, uh, and that sort of their thinking was you can't treat kids like you do adults. Um, Then there was a series of decisions on life sentences. Uh, And for non-homicide crimes, the Supreme Court said you can't give a juvenile a life sentence. There has to be, it doesn't mean that they have to be automatically released uh, because, you know, the Supreme Court will usually defer to states. Like, we're going to tell you what you can't do. You figure out how you're going to make this work. That was a Supreme Court decision? Supreme Court said you can't give a juvenile a life sentence for a non-homicide crime. Then the Supreme Court in 2012 said, in a case called Miller, said you can't give a juvenile a mandatory life without parole sentence for homicide. So what this means is a juvenile can still get life without parole for homicide, but it can't be a mandatory sentence. And Louisiana and a lot of southern states have one-size-fits-all sentencing. You're convicted of second-degree murder, judge has no discretion, life without parole. So... What Louisiana had to do was say, you know, we're going to allow a sentencing screen scheme that gives judges an opportunity to re- to say, I'm going to give, you know, maybe a sentence other than life without parole. But what they ended up doing was saying, for most crimes, juvenile commits, you're going to be parole eligible after serving 25 years. All that means is you're going to get a hearing. You, it's Louisiana. The parole board is still conservative. Uh, our parole board consists of two retired judges, two retired parole officers, uh, a retired warden, um, a retired, uh, you know, so, so it's... I message you whenever I watch them, you know. Yeah, that, right? yeah. So, you know, these aren't like warm and fuzzy liberals who are uh, deciding if people go home or not. But um, so so in Louisiana, juveniles, after serving 25 years for, you know, most homicide crimes, will get a parole hearing and they may be granted parole or they may be denied parole, and then they'll have to wait years to reapply. So in my situation, I had a few things going for me. Uh, and even after that Miller decision in 2012, Louisiana didn't change immediately. There was a case that was a Baton Rouge case called Montgomery Right. in 2000. January. Henry t- Montgomery. Henry Montgomery, whose real name isn't Henry Montgomery.
2: What? What's the, his name? Harry Smith. He was in prison under Henry Montgomery? Yep.
1: I just met another
2: guy, Shane. Same thing. Yep. So, so,
1: so you, he, so Henry Montgomery's case was a local case, and what Henry Montgomery's case affected people who were already in prison because you had Southern states like Louisiana were saying, "Well, Miller only applies to new cases," so they had to bring uh, a, this Henry Montgomery's case to the U.S. Supreme Court. Guy who had been incarcerated for over fifty years since he was seventeen, and the U.S. Supreme Court said, "No, Miller applies to people who were already incarcerated." So Andrew, whose family could afford to hire an attorney, had already been back to court and had the same judge that sentenced me to life, was my judge on trial, was still on the bench. Whenever he sentenced me, he said, I'm sorry, but there's only one sentence I can give you life without parole. He re-sentenced me to parole eligibility. This was before the legislature had enacted anything. So as soon as Montgomery came down, I was at the front of the line, not because I was the best Not because I was the most special, not because I was—I may have been the best. I was—I may have been best looking, but I was white, (laughs) and I had an attorney who had got me resentenced. I was at the front of the line. Yeah, having so you already in play though. That's so I was in play. So I I was the first juvenile lifer in Louisiana to get a parole hearing. And uh, in June second, two thousand sixteen, I had a parole hearing. First juvenile lifer. I told—I thought you know they're going to deny me. I had—I was thirty four had only done 19 years, and I say only, only only because I served with a lot of people who had done a lot more time, and I thought, you know, really, really bad crime, first juvenile life, they're going to deny me. But you know what? They're going to keep denying me, and one day they're going to get tired of denying me. And my my prayer was, please let my parents still be alive when I come home because I'm going to lose my mind. Because even though I was by this time 34, you know, part of my emotional growth was stunted because I went to prison depending on my parents to feed me, to put a roof over my head, to give me, you know, emotional love and support. And then suddenly I went to prison, but I was still dependent on their visits, on their phone calls. Uh, So, you know, please, you know, God let me go home when my parents were still alive was my prayer. Uh, And and thankfully had that hearing on June 2nd, uh, 2016 The board did something they don't normally do. They said, we're going to take this under advisement. In Louisiana, they usually tell you right at the end of the hearing, you're granted or you're denied. They said, we're taking it under advisement. We'll inform you of the decision. So I figured, you know, in 30 days, I'm going to get a letter in the mail saying, you've been denied, apply again in a couple of years. So one week to the day, June 9th, I was on the range crew thinking about cows, thinking about horses. You know, putting putting that, you know, doing what you do in prison, you know, people who are successful in prison are thinking about prison, not thinking about the outside. What guy doing the worst time in prison has young kids on the outside or a girlfriend or wife on the outside. That's all he's thinking about the outside world. I'm thinking about cows. And on 1030 uh, in the morning on June 9th, 2016, my boss is next to me and his cell phone rings. And he looks at me and I could tell that conversations about me. And he's like, all right, all right. And he hangs up the phone and he looks at me and he says, you need to go pack your shit. So what does go pack your shit in yeah, prison well, usually mean? Yeah. You're going to lockdown. You did something wrong. So like in that split second, I'm thinking, what well, in do? the
2: parish, it also means you're, you're either getting transferred or you're going home. Yeah. Pack your shit. So pack your shit to me doing a life
1: sentence, yeah. not thinking I was going to get granted. What do you mean? And he said, you're, they're letting you out. And I was like, well, no, they can't. Like, It must be a bad message because the parole board, he's like, they granted you parole. And I'm like, wait a minute. How did they do that? And ended up finding out that an hour before, at 9 a.m., the parole board had an administrative hearing that they allowed my attorney to attend, that I, by rules I didn't have to attend, uh, where they voted, and they voted to release me. So my attorney came out of there, called my mom. So at 9:30, my mom knew her boy was coming home and I didn't find out. It took an, another hour for me to find out. So I'm in disbelief. I'm thinking there must be something wrong. And so my, a lot of my stuff was at my job site because I didn't really live in the dorm. I lived at the job. Um and you know they're telling me pack your stuff and I'm thinking, "Man, I'm going to get to the dorm. I'm going to be embarrassed when they find out, when I find out." You know, I've got my stuff, and they're like, oh, no, it's a false alarm. My boss is telling me, man, pack your stuff. I'm not bringing you back out here. So I do, and as soon as I get to the Sally Port at the camp I live out, Freeman's telling me, you need to go see the classification officer and sign your release papers. And at that point, it was real. Did you cry? I cr- I, it took me a couple days before I cried, to be really? honest with you, because I was in a state of shock. And uh, and I think something weird like watching a movie is what actually, right. you know, it was some weird moment.
2: You didn't have that... When you heard it.
1: I uh, So I I go to the classification officer. She's there with a big smile. I see the the release paperwork. She says, do you want to call somebody? I said, yeah, I want to call my mom. So I had no idea. So she dials the number. My mom answers. Hello. I was like, hey, it's me. She's like, yeah. I said, do you know something? She said, yeah, you're coming home. I was like, wow. She's like, yeah, I've, I've known for about an hour now. And she actually, I talked to her on the phone the night before. And the attorney told her that that hearing was coming up. But she didn't tell me because she she knows how I am. And she didn't want me to get worked up about it. So uh, I woke up that morning thinking I was might die in prison, might go home in several years. Found out at 1030 I was going home. At 430 I was walking through the gates with my family.
0: Man, that's probably why you didn't, you didn't, uh, like you did it wasn't. There was no like build up, like a countdown to no. the release. They're like, bro, you out? I'm like, nah, no, I can't be. And then you just never it set was, it in.
1: It was anticlimactic. Probably
0: watching Friends or something like that, watching Netflix. Like, oh my God, I'm pretty.
2: And uh, you
1: know.
2: every I ask everybody that comes on here, I'm like, did you cry? Because I was a big baby. So I want to make sure everybody else cried I like I did. I did, <laughs> I and I like, wish I
1: could say that to seem more like as a yeah, human nah, being. Yeah,
2: it's fine. You're just a gangster. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm just emotionally nah, bored. I mean,
2: you spend that much time, and I think anybody that spends time, you, you get desensitized to, to emotion.
1: I can tell you the thing that scared my first few weeks home, the whole time my fear was they're going to come get me. Yeah. This was a mistake. They made a mistake. Cause you hear about that uh, clerical yeah. error. Dude's getting accidentally let out and then
2: having to come back.
1: Yeah, because there was even arguing you know, like district attorney that was like come to the hearing arguing like, hey, you know, the legislature hasn't technically passed a bill. You know, we don't think he should have this parole hearing. And like, I know I've been resentenced and everything, but like,
2: was that because of victim opposition or there was, was
1: o- yeah there was opposition yeah. and then you know DA's doing his job. Just I'm gonna throw something against the wall and see what stick sticks but every day like someone knocks at the door i'm like is it the is it the people coming to arrest me to send me back to prison so it took a while you know my attorney advised me he's like hey the quicker you get married And have kids, you have a stronger liberty argument if they ever pick you back up.
2: (laughs) Sorry, we're missing a human being. Uh, Your best friend in real estate uh, got a call. There's a uh, $7.8 million home on Highland Road. He's got to go close right now. And he said, I love the podcast, but I don't love you that much. So I'm going to get this
0: bread. Andy,
2: you got out in 2016. And, uh, man, I can't imagine getting released like that. Um, So let me ask you this. What would you say was your greatest challenge coming home? And and I know you well enough to know that you prepared yourself for a lot of those challenges with your education and stuff because you knew you had to better yourself and, and become more marketable than the next human. But just in general, what was your biggest challenge in the reintegrating?
1: So I think as I said before, you know, I had opportunities, like being at the barracks, um... Sort of, I had a job where I was working in the community. There are things that, pe- you know, people don't get to experience that I got to experience. I had familiarity with technology, interacting with the public, you know, being a consumer. Um, so, but I did go to prison when I was fifteen, and I never really was a driver unless I was sneaking my parents' car Absolutely. out. So Neutral. I, I remember, you know, within the first week of being home, I got invited to this luncheon in downtown Baton Rouge, and, uh, you know, I'm driving, and I have the address and figured out GPS, and it takes me to it, but there's nowhere to park. Uh, And then I'm driving, and I see a parking garage, and I go up, and I can't figure out how to get in. It's embarrassing to say (laughs) today, but could not figure out how to get into the parking garage. And, like, I saw that kiosk, and I saw the gate.
2: Oh, yeah. Where you got to pull your ticket?
1: Yeah, but I... I was embarrassed to even drive up to punch for the ticket because I didn't even know how it worked. I didn't know if I was going to hit a button and someone was going to come over a microphone and I wouldn't know what to say. So I just like drove and drove. And I'm, and now I'm almost going to be late for a meeting. So I parked on Government Street at the Frost Top oh. and walked several blocks because it was the one place I knew how to park in a parking lot. I, I I didn't have the real world experience.
2: Where was the meeting? At?
1: The the meeting was at Capital City Grill. Which oh wow! Do
2: you had to go all the way down s- Luis and then get- several
1: several blocks. And I, you know, I'm a I'm a, uh, I'm a fast walker. But you know, just because, and I went into that meeting, and you know, I remember thinking like they're looking at me like, man, here's a guy who just came home a week ago. But look how you know polished he is. Look how prepared he is to take on the world. And, like, they couldn't even see that I, I couldn't figure out how to park. Labyrinth so, acid
2: about your parking So, situation. like, yeah,
1: driving, like, things, little things that people take for granted, like how to park downtown or how to park in a, a parking garage. You know, I also think, uh, you know, and like, learning how to communicate with people on a professional level and what was expected to me. And it was really hard, like, overcoming the sense that, everyone was looking down on me. Yeah. And, like, can these people really be taking
2: me seriously? I Um, had that fear for a long time. Yeah, so. You always wonder if somebody's going to figure you out. Right. person that you don't want to know that you've been incarcerated because you think if they know they're going to judge me, I'm not going to get this opportunity, they're going to base their decision on me about this. And, like, I had to come to the conclusion, like, the word felon is not written all across my forehead. So by and large, most people are not going to peg me to be a felon or formerly incarcerated.
1: I had the same, you know, going into a grocery store, I wonder if everyone's looking at me and can tell I just came home from prison. And to be honest with you, you know, those experiences are, are what helped lead me to do what I do today. Absolutely.
2: So... Uh, speaking of, well, t- what was your first job? You were working with Elaine at, at New Roads, right? Yeah, my
1: first job when I came home was teaching pre-release classes to parish prisoners at Point Capita Shout out center. to
2: Warden Steve Juge. Steve Juge.
1: I like Steve. Steve, a good he's dude. He's the warden at West Baton. I know. I, I talked out. to him great, the
2: other day. Great guy. Yeah, cool dude. Uh and so teaching pre-release to the guys, and, and, uh, and I had the opportunity to go out there a couple of times and see in action, go speak to those guys, and that was a good program. Um, and then where where'd you go from there? Uh, so
1: working for that organization uh, at the same time I was uh, you know, in starting college but also started my own nonprofit organization, co-founded Louisiana Parole Project. Uh, 501c3 organization. Um, Y'all go check them out. We're, we're on, you know, on social media at Parole Project, paroleproject.org online. Um, you know, we had an abstract idea. We recognized all these juvenile lifers were about to have parole hearings. And then there have been a lot of reforms um, over the last few years that people who thought had life or de facto life sentences now have an opportunity for a review. Doesn't mean they're coming home, but some of them are coming home. Uh, And we're the organization that's doing reentry work for people who've served long prison sentences, 20, 30, 40, 50 years in prison. Uh, We're advocating for their release, but when they come home, we're meeting them at the front gate. We have a residential housing program in Baton Rouge where they'll come and live with us, whether they're with us for several weeks, several months. Our goal with all of our clients is self-sufficiency. You know, these are people who've grown up in prison They aren't the same person they were at 15, 16, 18, 19 years old. You know, they're in their 40s, 50s, 60s now, even older than that in a lot of cases. Uh, They're totally different people. They just need, they're going to, they're not going back to prison. They just need help learning how to fit in. They need to learn how to park. They need to learn how to use debit cards. Most of them are holding their first cell phone. Can't say all of them are holding their first cell phone because there are a lot of cell phones floating around prison, but many of them, for the first time in their lives, you know, they're holding a cell phone. They've learned to trade in prison. They've gotten an education. They've picked up skills. Um, but they just need to learn how to fit in into the world. And we have a peer mentorship program. That means we hire formerly incarcerated people, a lot of times there are clients that have gone through our program, gone out, gotten jobs, been successful. We hire them back to be mentors, to be coaches, awesome. uh, and it's it's a model that works.
2: Andrew's being really humble too. Uh, not he does that on the streets out here on the freeway when these guys get released, uh, but also there's a component on the inside that I had the the fortunate privilege of witnessing firsthand, um, through interaction with a, with a deaf guy at Angola, William Johansson had a clemency hearing and they accepted him. And, uh, I kind of knew what the program was about and, uh, and really got a, really got to see the, the, the hands and feet work that goes into preparing these guys for their parole hearings, uh, on the inside. So there's a, you know, there's a lot that goes into it as far as you know. They go up to Angola or wherever these guys are, are housed at, and they meet with them. They get all of their case information. They've got attorneys at LSU, correct? That 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 help. Or, or we have we have
1: the we, we have a partnership with Louisiana State. University Law Center, but we also have a couple of attorneys on staff now. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Organizations is grow. Robert
2: working with y'all, Lancaster? Yeah,
1: Robert's actually the president of our board of directors, Okay. Uh, but also you know he runs the the clinics at LSU.
2: So so they they have okay, you have uh, staff attorneys now, which is amazing. Uh, so attorneys, you know, work and put these uh, files together and these plans together for these guys, and then go because I can tell you right now. And you know, working with William through that process, uh, that is a that's a that's a lot of information. That's a lot of prepping. That's a lot of going over how to uh, present yourself in these hearings, uh, things to say, uh, things you need to be thinking about in terms of if you've got victim opposition and and all, I mean just the whole gamut of things. And I can understand why throughout the years. It was easy for the parole board to turn these guys down at the drop of a hat. You go in there, you're scared, right? The fear of going in front of the parole board, that in and of itself will shut you down. You know what I mean? Much less having to say the right thing to all – because they're using psychology on you. you. Most people don't know that, so they're triggering for responses, right? And so you have to know how to answer these things. And, man, I'm going to tell you, they do a phenomenal job – uh, preparing these guys on what kind of question, what type of questions are going to be asked. You know, things you need to be thinking about in terms of your response, where it needs to go. Are you, you know, all these things? And uh, you know, that's that's God's work, in my opinion, because uh, you are going in there with a group of guys that have lost hope on their freedom, and you know, you are now there is an organization who comes in and doesn't charge me to help me get free. That's unheard of. That's that's not work that most people do. And, uh, you know, I know throughout all of the prisons where they have guys that fit the bill for this program, um, there's hope, you know. And, and, and like you know, when you put hope into a prison system, things start changing. Dudes ain't going to be violating and they're not going to be stabbing and, and doing all the things that they do normally if they feel like they might never go home. You know what I mean? So... Curbs, violence, curbs, uh, you know, all of the mischievous things that can happen. Um, but, I mean, yeah, the work that they're doing is, is great, necessary, uh, and I'm truly thankful that you guys are around that, you know.
1: That, well, and the work's especially important in Louisiana because, you know, our state more than anyone else has like perfected the art of incarcerating people for lifetimes per capita. We have the most people serving life without parole sentences. We don't have the worst people in the country. We, we just, we send people to prison and forget about them. Uh, and if, if you do time in a place like Angola, you know, there are some young guys showing up, but there are a whole lot more older guys who, you know, public safety is not improved when we have 50 60 70 year olds in prison for that long uh, we spend a lot of money they become more expensive the longer we incarcerate them um
2: and you know is that it's, because of medical and it's things because like- of
1: medical issues and and look you know we can put more f- really the, the formula is really simple um it, it's we can we can send people to prison uh, throw them away stop thinking about them but it's getting really expensive. And when we do that, you know, in Louisiana, our, we don't want more taxes. We tell our lawmakers no new taxes. So there's, there's only, you know, so much revenue there. So lawmakers, the state has to decide, are we going to fix roads? Uh, are we going to improve our hospitals? Or are we going to keep locking people up? And if the answer is we're going to keep locking people up, that's fine. But, you know, don't expect the interstate to widen. Uh, don't expect the potholes to get filled. And,
2: and teachers are making minuscule dollars, on uh, cents on the dollar, so but we're building prisons. So, in the so family.
1: really, really, you know, Texas, you know, not to agree with the death penalty, but one thing about Texas is they're going to give you the death penalty, or they're going to let you out one day. And what's happening in Louisiana is, in a lot of cases, for so long we're just not letting people out. We put them in prison and we forget about them. And th- there's for so many people no avenue for parole. Now we've gotten some laws changes, law ch- laws changed, but th- there's still so much to do. So what I say is no automatic get out. But for these people who are serving life sentences or 150-year sentences, there's got to be a point where we give them a hearing. Like, let's take a second look. Let's hear from victims. Let's hear from law enforcement. Let's hear from, you know, the person who's in prison's family. Let's hear what they've done. Let's put all the cards on the table. And let's determine, is it worth spending $20,000, 25000 a year to keep this person locked up? We could be scholarshipping a couple of kids to college for what it is to lock the sixty-year-old up who isn't a threat to public safety. They've served decades in prison. Why not give them a second chance? Amen.
2: Couldn't have said it better myself. Um, and it also is important that, uh, and we've talked about this before, but having these organizations that serve the prison population or the formerly incarcerated population led by formerly incarcerated people. You know when you talk about organizations that serve certain communities you want to make sure that you're putting people in place who have that experience in those positions that impact the lives of those folks and uh, and George King was on here the other day and I and I'm happy he's like you know warden position in, in, in Mississippi and I've always said you have to put people impacted by the struggle in positions to change struggle
1: yeah there there are a few organizations like ours today that are led by uh you know formerly incarcerated people impacted people and our organizations are among the strongest organizations they are
2: the strongest because all the other ones that i know of that aren't led by formerly incarcerated folks well I just agree. <laughs> I I'm really, I, that, yeah. I'm very
1: proud of Parole Project.
2: Yeah, no, I am too, man. It's a great organization. And uh, what's the website? Paroleproject.org. And how can people, what type of things can people do to help uh whether it's donate, because I know these guys need clothes. So how can people help you?
1: So people, first of all, financial contributions. We're a nonprofit organization. We depend on contributions from the public, small donations, large donations. It allows us to give people housing. It allows us to give people transportation to work. Uh, You know, we get people on their feet. They don't come to our house and, like, they go from one, one prison to living in a bunk bed at one of our houses. They're there while they get on their feet. They're there while they're getting their lives together. Uh, And, you know, we've brought home uh, well over 300 men and women who were serving life or de facto life sentences. Less than 1% have gone back to prison. The recidivism rate in Louisiana averages around 42%. Less than 1% of our clients have gone to prison. It works. Uh, We say we're turning tax burdens to taxpayers. Uh, you know, my conservative friends like to hear that. But we're giving op- people opportunity to be reach their full potential uh, and be the best version of themselves that they can be. And you wouldn't know our clients had been in prison if you see them in the community. They're shopping next to you. They're your neighbors. They're sitting Wearing next to you Wearing suit and ties,
2: by the way. And I
1: promise you can't pick them out. Yeah. They're, they're contributing to our communities. Uh, over 90 juvenile lifers like me are home in Louisiana now. They're working, uh, you know, they're kicking ass in their community. They're doing well. I can promise you in the last several years, our state is better served by those people who've been held accountable for the crimes that they've committed, have done their time, have gotten second chances. They're taxpayers. They're volunteers. They're holding key jobs in our community. Louisiana is better for that. Amen. Uh, what
2: other ways can they contribute other to ways, financially?
1: Financially, uh, on our website, we offer people volunteer opportunities. We look for people to mentor our clients, whether you're a banker, uh, you know, whatever professional experience you have, mentor one of our clients. If you're a, you want to be an AA sponsor for one of our clients, volunteer. If you're a landlord, take a chance on someone who has a criminal conviction. I promise you that someone who's been incarcerated for that long comes home they, more than anyone, want to live in a crime-free environment. Yeah. They're going to be the first person, if there's something shady going on in the block, that they're, They may not be the first person to call the cops, but they're the first person to go put someone in check and say, I don't want to live around this. Get out of my neighborhood with that foolishness. Uh, you take a chance on, you know, when we have landlords that take chances on people, they're the landlords that call us back and say, hey, if you got someone else, send them to me. Um, employers. If you're an employer and you want to hire someone, you want, you want a loyal person working for you. Issue I have with a lot of my clients, they get a job and they don't leave. They want to be loyal because they learned that in prison. You yeah. get a job and you stick with yeah. it. And, you know, if you're an employer, you want to take a chance on someone, take a chance on one of my clients. I, I can give you tons of references in the community. If someone employs my clients, chances are they employ two or three. They took a chance on one, and then they come back and ask to hire more.
2: What about clothing?
1: Uh, you know, we'd, we'd, we do take clothing. A lot of times we get donated impractical things. Not everyone needs a suit. Yeah. People need khakis, people need jeans, people need polo shirts. You know, we do appreciate donations, but if you give me a financial donation, I'm going to take them to the store, I'm going to buy them something new. If you have something gently used, shoes. People come home from prison with
2: raggedy shoes. Right, it's usually yeah. one raggedy pair them of tennis state shoes. New balances. <laughs> new balances. <laughs> old dead barbecue shoes. Uh, let me ask you this last question, tools.
1: Uh, tools, you know, sometimes we have clients who are or mechanics uh, they're, 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 carpenters, uh, they're electricians. If you have, uh, tools you'd like to donate, I promise, you know, you'd be saving someone who's looking to go into their trade
2: some money. Absolutely. Well, Andrew, I appreciate you coming on. It's always a pleasure. Appreciate the work that you do. Uh, I look forward to, to seeing all the rest of the things that you're going to do. And I like watching your, You're seeing your pictures of the baby and your wife. I always love a good success story. A guy who comes home, starts a family, builds a business, does community work. And, you know, at the end of the day, I say it all the time we got to come out here and we got to change the the perception that people have of us, you know. And you're doing that work. And uh, so, yeah, man, keep it up. Appreciate you. Appreciate you.